0: All right. Well, yeah, we'll go ahead and get started. I'll do a couple quick announcements, uh, introduce the crew, and then we'll jump into the program. So first thing, just want to welcome everyone to part three of Ask the CFPs. And we're going to be talking about insurance and asset protection and a couple other things tonight. Uh, Just a quick announcement before we jump in. Uh, If you guys haven't checked out Sunbit, uh, they're one of our new partners. If you own a private practice, great way to bring in extra revenue, great way to convert patients that otherwise would walk out of your office. So definitely check them out. It's an new sort of payment plan that's um, come out of the fintech world. So definitely take a look at them. Also want to welcome our new partner, Williams Group. And once again, Brad is fantastic. He's been answering a few of the questions on the feed. So if you ever see him, say hi and also jump onto Williams Group if that's something that you need to do. And let's go ahead and introduce our guests today. Not really guests anymore. uh, Very familiar faces. So Our first is Adam Schmela. Uh, Adam Schmela is our first CFP. He has helped individuals and practice owners make educated and informed personal and professional financial decisions. Being a third-generation business owner, the husband of an OD, and a certified financial planner gives him a unique perspective that separates him and his firm from other advisory firms. He is regularly published in optometry publications such as Review of Optometric Business and was named to Investopedia's Top 100 Financial Advisors in 2019. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for
1: having me back, Aaron, appreciate it. Uh, looking forward to tonight's lively discussion.
0: All right, and then our other CFP is Natalie hayes Schmook. and she is the founder and owner of Hayes Wealth Advisors LLC, a financial planning and investment management service for employed optometrists, practice owners, and their families. Natalie started her career in private wealth management division of SunTrust Bank in 2006 and earned her Certified Financial Planner designation in 2009. Natalie graduated with honors from Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, and also received her Master's of Business Administration there. So, welcome, Natalie. And you think I would have had these bios memorized, but I still have to read them off paper. <laughs> Every
2: time you do it, I'm like, I need to update that. <laughs> I mean, nothing's changed, but you
0: know. All right. So, yeah. Once again, for those tuning are tuning in, we're talking about insurance and asset protection today. And so let's just kind of jump in in general. Let's talk about insurance. Uh, There's so many different types of insurance and from a CSP's perspective, how do you rank the different insurances and which ones are important for ODs, which ones aren't as important? So if you just wanna kind of start a general discussion on that. And Adam, if you wanna take that one first.
1: Sure, Um, and and before we hit record, we were talking about my goal in this conversation is to not, not get on or try and refrain from jumping on as many soapboxes because insurance, it, it, it sounds weird to say this, but it's actually more of a lively discussion than I think a lot of ODs would get it, give it credit for because it's probably one of the most misunderstood pieces of financial planning. Um, I, from a prioritization organization of the insurance, I think there's a, what we first need to delineate between is what are the normal pieces of insurance that you have that you might not have the right kinds of, and then what are the different pieces of insurance that you may not even just have in general and so to kind of talk on the first one first i think the ones that a lot of people might have that you want to make sure that you have the right kinds of are going to be the ones that we all kind of take for granted right your health insurance your homeowners and auto insurance um, and and i'm not going to necessarily go in particular order here but because i think all of us have these types of insurances already your health insurance homeowners and auto uh, malpractice insurance, which, which we're gonna talk about here in a little bit, um, and then the, on the other side of that is going to be the life insurance and the disability insurance side of things that are either not had, people don't even have them in place or they've, they've had them in place, but they have the wrong kinds of that. I think the on those two sides, I think what I've typically seen is people will, interestingly enough, prioritize life insurance over disability insurance. But statistically speaking, the younger the younger you are as an OD, the more likely you are to face a disability claim than you are to pass away. right? The other thing that we'll just acknowledge about insurance, like it's a morbid topic. Uh, it doesn't it, it all deals with something happening to you or something happening to stuff that you own or people that you love. So from a risk management standpoint and from a planning standpoint, this is where we invoke the let's plan for the best but prepare for the worst. And all the insurance talk that we're talking about here falls squarely into that preparing for the worst. So I think if you're unsure as to which one, at least on the life insurance and disability insurance side of that, make sure that you have really, really good disability. And we're gonna talk about these in more detail here, but make sure that you have those two on the health insurance, homeowners insurance, auto insurance side of things. One area that I would give additional consideration to on the health insurance side of things is evaluating the difference in whether or not it is more advantageous for you to be on an HSA qualified healthcare plan, or a which has a higher deductible, but a lower premium versus a typical uh, traditional PPO type plan, which is going to have a much higher premium, but a lower deductible. Everything in financial planning that I, I think of it as a benefit in exchange, right? In exchange for the benefit of a lower out-of-pocket cost, well, I'm exchanging that benefit for a much higher premium, so we can talk a little bit about it about that if we want as well. But, um, that's kind of my high level overview of the different pieces of the chessboard, if you will, of insurance that I look at from a planning perspective.
0: All right, and Natalie,
2: um, so uh, to echo what Adam said, one they're they're kind of all important. Um, there is some.
1: <laughs> It's like one A, B, C, D, and E, right?
2: <laughs> I could list ones that I, I care less about. I care less about usually, especially when someone's young, long-term care insurance, um, or a lot of doctors are able to self-insure. And ultimately, I care less about cancer insurance and hospital, all those boutique policies. Those make serious money for insurance companies. So I care less about those. But when we talk about the basics, medical, homeowners, auto, umbrella, um, life and disability, you could say they're not one's more important than the other until your car gets hit or lightning strikes your house or whatever it is they're they're all important so
0: all right great. (laughs) yeah that's a good intro to this whole thing and yeah let's talk a little bit about an important one for our profession that's malpractice insurance Uh, so how should employed ods and also owner ods uh, approach malpractice insurance and natalie if you want to start that one
2: yeah. So typically malpractice insurance is a formulaic approach. Um, so, you know, if you go to the AOA and you're looking for malpractice, they're going to tell you how much you can have. Um, so the important part is to have it. in um, 1099 ODs out there, don't take your practice word for it. If they say they cover you, you need to read that policy and make sure you don't need your own policy. That, I mean, that honestly is probably my biggest piece of advice on if anyone's 1099, making sure they're going out Um, and it's really important to understand, and this seems to be a really common misconception, malpractice insurance only relates to your practice. It doesn't cover anything you do at home. Uh, It usually doesn't cover if you're driving a company's car. It doesn't cover that kind of stuff. It is only a mistake that you can make as an OD. So that's really different than looking at your umbrella insurance, where if you get in a car wreck or if someone sues you for slander, your malpractice insurance isn't gonna cover that. So it is not a catch-all for all areas of liability in your life. It is limited to what goes on within your practice.
0: Yeah, and Adam, anything to add to that?
1: You know, the, the thing that I would echo on top of what Natalie had said is to understand what type of policy you own. Is it a claims-based policy or is it occurrence-based? The difference between the two types of policies is that the occurrence based policy is going to cover you, even if you're not practicing, as long as the policy was in place when the occurrence happened, right? So for retired ODs that are on the that are on this call right now, or you know, you had a policy 10 years ago at a practice and you're no longer practicing because you're taking a couple year hiatus and staying home with the kids, whatever it might be. If you have the policy in place at the time that the occurrence happened, that policy will cover you in the case of, you know, if you're found at fault or covering legal fees, arbitration, whatever that might be. A claims-based policy, on the other hand, is one that is only going to pick up if the, if the suit happens or if the, it's only going to be in effect if you have that policy enforced when the claim is made. And so you have to understand that if you have a claims-based policy and you stop practicing, some of them will have an exclusionary period that will say, hey, well, this will cover it's called a, a, tail, uh, a tail coverage or an extended tail. So The claims-based policy will end, let's say you decide to hang it up at the end of this year. Well, 1231 of 2020, the claims-based coverage ends, but it might have tail coverage for the next five years, which would cover you for that five years or seven years or three years or whatever that term is. Typically your occurrence-based policies are going to be a little bit more expensive, just because statistically speaking, you, that policy is on the hook for years after you stop paying or after after you potentially have stopped paying for coverage so just understand to what Aaron had said or excuse me to what Natalie had said, especially if you're in a 10.99 situation is to understand what type if you do have to pick up your own coverage know what you're paying for know what you're getting and then complementary to that is understand if, if different states will have different type of uh, state uh, state tongue tied here state, like a a general fund in the state that will require in order for that state to pick up the tab if you want some of that, you have to carry your own up to a certain level of malpractice insurance as well. So understand A, the two different types of policies that you have, as well as if your policy needs to work in harmony, if you will, with any type of uh, state
0: general fund. All right, great. And that was kind of the softball question. So let's (laughs) jump into (laughs) that. Jump into the meat of this presentation. Uh, let's talk about life insurance. Uh, what are it's a topic that's hotly debated, especially for doctors. Um, what are, what's your advice for ODs and Adam? If you want to start that one, oh, let me just kind of flex here a little bit. And every, <laughs> all right. So, a
1: couple of disclaimers. Um, or I shouldn't maybe not sort of disclaimers, but just full disclosure. Same thing. Same difference. Um, I used to be a life insurance agent, right? I used to be a licensed agent to be able to sell insurance. The joke in financial planning and in financial services is that life insurance is never bought. It's always sold. Um, and life insurance, unlike almost any other, in fact, it is unlike any other piece of insurance, there's an emotional attachment that the consumer has to it once they buy it. There's there's confirmation bias that happens. There's um, We just, we, we can't part with it we bought it, we have to keep it. And there's just, and I have to get something for it, right? When you think about all the other different pieces of insurance that you have in your life, health insurance, home and auto, umbrella policy, medical, um, uh, I said home and auto, you know, commercial liability at your practice, you know, for your building and things like that. None of those policies have any type of cash value associated with them. There's no value in it. And the only, most, most importantly, the single most important and only job of that policy is to protect whatever you bought it for in the first place. But for some reason, and this goes back, you know, 150, almost 200 years, insurance companies figured out a way in which to make life insurance into a Swiss army knife. And it is sold to consumers in a way with as far reaching bells and whistles, if you will, as it's college education, and it's a bank on yourself to pay yourself into cash value and then borrow to buy your car. Use it as a down payment on your house. It's a guaranteed you know, tax-free income stream in retirement. It can be used to um, fund business opportunities. It's succession and estate planning, which we'll get into that in a little bit um, about the difference between personal life insurance and business life insurance. But it's been sold in so many different ways that there's value with this life insurance. Personally speaking, from a planning standpoint, our goal with ODs is to help them make the most efficient decision with their dollar as possible. And when you compare the cost of a permanent type policy, like a whole life index, universal life, variable universal life, and you try and ask insurance to do something that it's not, my professional opinion is to buy as much insurance as you can for as least amount of premium as possible. And I don't want to say leverage because I'm not talking about like truly in a leverage debt sense, but but maximize the wealth building opportunities that you have with your money in other avenues. Don't make life insurance into something that it's not. Protect your income, which by the way, for every OD listening, your income is the most important wealth creating tool ever it's not what stock you buy, it's not what index fund you invest in, it's not this, like your ability to generate revenue as an OD in a very, very cash flow rich business model, such as private practice, such as optometry, is the single greatest wealth building opportunity that you have in the absence of you being able to do that. And that's why I talked about disability in the beginning as well. All of the other things that we're talking about here and that predominantly dominate the conversations on this Facebook group of investing and qualified plans all of that is a house of cards without a solid risk management plan in place so i know it may sound like i'm talking on both sides of my mouth here it's like adam doesn't like insurance and it's sold it's never it's always sold it's never bought true but it's still a really really flippant important piece of your financial plan and to do everything else without addressing that like i said is building a house of cards so that was soapbox number one i will pause there get off and and turn that turn the the soapbox over to Natalie and get her thoughts on it as well
2: yes so I think what Adam is trying is saying if you haven't caught on is don't <laughs> buy permanent insurance so with we there's two types of life insurance there's permanent and there's term so and then within permanent there's whole life and variable universal and universal life so I know that those are really complicated words just they're slightly different in all of how they operate um, but if, you know I we both used to sell life insurance back when we started selling I think I can speak for you when I say this um, the estate tax exemption was a million dollars yep. I worked with clients who had five 10 20 million dollars and there was a place there was a legitimate place for permanent insurance as a estate tax replacement absolutely we're in a world where the estate tax exemption for a married couple is portable in between two people it's twenty two and a half million dollars it is just um. It's not a consideration anymore. And so when I look at planning, one of the biggest factors I consider is flexibility first. And when you pile all this money into policy that, yeah, grows over time, and yeah, theoretically, you can access it for it, that leaves you without that same amount of money to do something else. And so I would much rather see someone buy term and invest the difference, which is the really catchy way to say it, but take that same premium and put the rest in the stock market. Um, and let it grow in a prudent manner and let it grow. I've dissected policies over the long term. You were better off buying term and investing the difference than any death benefit you could get on a policy ever. It's, it's just, it's never not ended up that way. So, and then the other thing that's tricky is agents will sell you on being able to take money out of your policy, your permanent policy and you can actually get in trouble. If you take out a loan that exceeds your basis and it collapses the policy, you can actually owe taxes on the difference. I mean, it's it, to me, it's a really risky strategy and you're paying higher than market interest rates within a policy if you take a loan out. So I, it's just not an approach that I like. I'm definitely yeah. a fan of buying term and investing.
1: I wanna emphasize what Natalie said there and, and, or I should say, yeah, just, I mean, that 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 taxable amount can be six figures worth of um, of income on your return if that policy implodes, if you will, because there's not enough cash value in the policy to now support the death benefit of that policy. And that happens when you start taking excessive loans and or distributions out of the policy, and that policy lapses and kind of implodes on itself, that tax liability is due in that one year. You don't get the opportunity to spread that tax liability out over a number of years. And that can be six figures worth of um worth of income showing up on a return, typically in retirement when people's incomes are more fixed than they've ever been. So yeah, to, to Natalie's point, it's just, you, you've gotta be very, very careful with how, very careful and very realistic about how life insurance is is positioned. If you're ever wondering how to evaluate the current status of your policy and match it up, one thing that you can look at to kind of compare to see how this policy was position to, if if you're one of these, if you're an OD that has a permanent policy and you're wondering, how does this compare? What should I do with it? The first thing that you can do on your own, if you want, if you still have it, is to go back to your original policy, typically, well, not typically, legally, in an illustration has to be attached to that policy. And then what you can do is you can call your agent. If you want to make your agent really nervous, ask for an enforced illustration. All right. If you don't want to make your agent nervous, then just go straight to the source, go to the life insurance company and ask, I'd like an in-force illustration on my existing life insurance policy. And having that in-force illustration will show what the current, obviously or the current value of the policy right now, but then it will show based off of the current, you know, interest rate of the policy, if it's a whole life or if it's an index universal life. Or if it's a variable universal life, it'll assign some type of marginal growth rate to the underlying investments. And it will show you what the projected value of that cash value is going to be in 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, depending on your age. And then you can flip back to your illustration when you bought the policy and see how those two are matching up to determine, did this thing kind of hold its promise as to how it was positioned? Speaking from experience, I have not seen that happen. Um, and for, for multiple different reasons that we don't need to get in right here. But that's that would be the first shot across the bow that you can take to determine is this thing doing what it was supposed to do or what it should be doing in my plan? So we could make this whole thing about
0: life insurance, just to be honest, oh, yeah. like I'm gonna <laughs> buy it. <That's laughs> a huge, It's a big topic and yeah, got a lot of controversy around it.
2: Since we're on life insurance, um, mm-hmm. this is probably a good point for practice owners to insert about a, a buy sell if uh funded with life insurance if you co-own a practice versus life insurance for your family those aren't the same amounts um so just because you've, you let's say your practice is worth a million dollars and you each buy half a million dollars worth of life insurance on the co-owners that doesn't mean that if, if something happened you died five hundred thousand dollars is enough to support your family so don't assume that those policies Are the same policy. They'll be. It depends on your personal situation. Maybe you have saved up enough for retirement and your kids' education that five hundred thousand is enough. And maybe you haven't if you're thirty-five years old. So um, just make sure that as you um, look at your policies and you're by sell, that's not the same as a personal policy.
1: And I think. See, we keep volleying back and forth on this, and and it's. I, I think what I. The point that I want to make here is, yes, it's somewhat related to life insurance, but it's in the general scheme of the, the general idea of asset protection and making sure, maybe not asset protection, but just asset protection in the sense of protecting the net worth that you've built or supplementing that net worth in the absence of you being able to produce as an optometrist. What I mean by that is don't bank on your practice as being your life insurance policy or if something happens to me then my wife or my husband can sell the practice or someone else in the city will come in and buy my practice a natalie i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this my limited experience in seeing this happen and i and i've seen that there's more data candidly i haven't seen this data in the optometry space but there's a significant amount of data in the dentistry space that says if a practice owner dies without any type of succession or continuity plan the value of that practice goes down by roughly 10% per week. And after about six weeks, the practice is worth the equipment in the practice.
2: It is, it is a daily. I mean, if yeah. if if you were if you were an individual practice owner, let's qualify that, um, and something happens to you, you need to tell your spouse to buy or sale your practice to the first available buyer in town yeah. possible. Because
1: and, we, and do you think they're going to give you a top dollar?
2: No, because without a doctor to run that practice it's not worth anything. So if you build a practice that you have, it runs without you, great. But most people, even if they have an associate or a part-time doctor, that is not the same as you running your practice. So um, so th- that needs to be accounted for to Adam's point, big time in your life insurance planning because your practice is not going to be the, worst, the worth the same if you if you pass away as if you willingly sold it to a buyer.
1: Yeah. So, so my point in bringing that up as you're looking at, well, okay, the common question is, well, Adam and Natalie, how much life insurance do I need? Take the fact that you own, purely for the filter of protecting your family, take the fact that you own a, my, my thought is take the fact that you own a practice out of the equation and only in, only insure yourself to the extent that you need insurance and, and I've seen ODs that have built, you know, between the net worth that they have in their cash balance plan and their 401k and, and investment accounts, Roth IRAs, like you can be self-insured and no longer need life insurance and still possibly want to carry it in your practice. If you're a partner or a three-doc practice where you've got multiple different partners, there's there can still be a place for life insurance in the practice, but on the personal side, don't count your practice as an asset in lieu of life insurance.
2: It, it exactly it should replace what you need to get your family through their lives yeah period in the story not my practice yeah. will sell for this on top of that that's yeah. exactly right yeah. all right we told you this was really exciting <laughs> this
1: is good stuff <laughs> and you're gonna feel so warm and fuzzy it's like oh we're <laughs> talking about all the ways i might die or become disabled <laughs> or right. get a car accident or be sued or right <laughs>
0: We actually, we got three Yay. questions, actually, before we jump into the next topic. So all I'll right, ask these real quick. Uh, Kim Nguyen uh, asked, can you repeat the two types of malpractice insurance? Claims versus what's the other one called? Occurrence-based. Occurrence-based for Kim. Yeah. And I had a recent 35-year-old OD who cashed out her 401k and dumped it into a whole life policy. Oh, no. What advice can you give her? Oh, so
2: Call somebody. <laughs> Senior, not serious. I shouldn't
1: say that. That's terrible. That. <laughs> so my initial thought, like if this seriously just happened, every st- I, I. Natalie you can correct me if I'm wrong on this or clarify it. I think it's every state is different, but most states legally have to have to offer you a free look period. What that means is from the day that you accept delivery of the policy, right? So my first question to that poster would be do you truly have the policy like you cashed it out the policy's been delivered to you you've signed the delivery receipt if that's the case states i think i've seen as short of a, as a 14 day free look and then as high as a 30 day i don't think i've ever seen more over 30. Um, so if you're really in that window right now you do have i've never seen it done with a 401k you do have a get out of joe free card if you will during that time where by law you have the ability to review it and return that policy to the issuer and basically contest if you will or say i don't want this let's undo what we're doing here now i don't know how you would be able to get that money back into a qualified plan i mean once that money's out it's out so at least you wouldn't have the policy but i i've never seen that happen I just so, got, a, just got an answer actually before. Oh, sorry, Natalie. Oh, yeah, say, I saw uh, it.
2: It's yeah. right here. Um, I should
1: pull up. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this half blind. I'm relying <laughs> on you guys. Hey, Adam, pull up. There's, there's a
2: delay, so but it's helpful to see. Um, so d- that's really tricky. So one other tricky thing, especially if you run into single pays or up to seven pays, is usually the rule of thumb. So if she's fully funding that policy, it could have become a mech when... The, and it's yeah. just a modified endowment contract but there's even more tax consequences related to taking it out so I don't know that there's a lot of great options there um yeah that's a real stumper of a question yeah. thank you thanks for <laughs>
0: <laughs> the <a> tough one <laughs> <laughs> all right well yeah we'll see what we can find and... I guess we can do some more research too, and that was Deb. Uh, they got that question from someone else, so yeah, we'll see what we can find on that. But yeah, I think that does it for the questions for now. So let's jump into disability insurance, and uh, what's your advice to ODs on disability? Another really big topic, so Natalie, if you wanna take this one first.
2: Yes, so Adam mentioned this earlier, but I, I, I seem to get a lot of pushback from ODs on disability for um, how expensive it is, because it is expensive. Um, and the reason it's expensive is because it's a lot more likely to happen than especially younger OD dying period End of story. Um, so disability typically covers 60% of what you make. Um, just as a side note, you're not going to be able to go if you make a hundred thousand dollars a year, get disability insurance for a hundred thousand dollars a year would be 60 to I've seen as high as 70,000. Um, And then there's within any given policy, there's a lot of bells and whistles. So um, there's things like a COLA adjustment, which is a cost of living adjustment. Um, There's things called a future benefit enhancement, which means that they'll automatically raise what your benefit is assuming that your living wage making 100, assuming it goes to 103 the next year and 105 or can't do my compounding math very well the next year after that. there's um, ones that will pay out a death benefit. There's there's all kinds of bells and whistles, but the the two that that you should keep your eye on are the one that I think is really important is that cost of living adjustment. So if um you know we've had a lot of government dollars going to the economy, and if you think there's going to be inflation in the future, you're going to want that because otherwise you're going to be making sixty thousand dollars and if you're thirty until you're age sixty five, and we all know that. Um, the $60,000 is not going to go very far. Um, disability policies usually go until age 65. There are some that will go longer, but in general, insurance companies figure you should retire eventually. <laughs> um, one of the other things, um, for example, a lot of doctors have the AOA policy. I haven't seen a really recent one. The ones I've reviewed have been older, but the ones I've seen don't have a cost of living adjustment. So. That's a great starter policy for doctors. Um, and by all means, if someone has one that's more recent and has it, please send it to me because it's really helpful <laughs> to see what they say. But um, and it also caps out the benefit. The last one I saw was around eighty five hundred a month, and some people yeah. make more than that. And um, those are two. Once you start getting to that one hundred thousand dollars in income mark, it's really time to supplement with what I would call um, a grown up policy. So or one hundred thousand. like And benefit. Um, need you're you're starting to look at a, a better carrier than or a more customized policy. It doesn't have to be super fancy. Um I love
1: I love that term grown-up policy. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Adam, you're oh, that's
2: welcome great. now that I've called it a grown-up policy you're
1: I, that, I'm, Absolutely I love it. It's great.
0: <laughs> uh um, all right, Adam, anything to add to that or
1: no I, I think natalie hit on those you know the the, CO, the cola is an important one the residual rider right i my my case study for having a residual rider on a policy there's an od in the atlanta area um, that i met a number of years ago at a conference and he's like he's not an in insurance you know like he's he's just like he didn't like stop practicing to sell insurance he's just so passionate about making sure that ods understand the importance of disability insurance because I forget the details, but I feel it was, it was like he, I think he fell off the ladder cleaning leaves out of his gutter and shattered his heel. And because of that, he was permanently partially disabled and could only like, he could only stand for X number of hours per day. And he had a really good disability policy that is now paying out a partial claim on his lost income, right? There's a delta between what he was producing versus what he's now only able to produce and that policy filled in that gap there. So the common thing that we think of with disabilities, like oh that won't happen to me I won't slip and fall I won't fall off a ladder I won't you know I broke my leg playing hockey when I was in high school and I broke my kneecap in my other leg two years ago playing hockey again I think I choose a different sport like these things can happen to you as well so making sure that you have that that own occupation coverage that it covers yourself your, your ability to practice optometry um Get multiple quotes, right? Like you like, just don't just take one quote from one company and think that that's the bee's knees. Um there's basically Natalie, correct me if I'm wrong on this, like four to five different carriers that are good own what are considered five A or like optometry is considered a five A occupation class. Um uh well, that's a good occupation. Thing.
2: That's yeah, yeah, that's I a good mean, thing. As yeah, that is it gets, yeah.
1: Exactly. So um, in no particular order, the companies that are coming to mind, um, Guardian, Principal, Mass Mutual, Standard.
2: Northwest Mutual.
1: Northwestern Mutual is, yeah, they they have a decent policy as well. Um, But make sure that if you're working with an agent, that it's an independent agent, that it's not someone that's captive, right? Ask to see the comparison of quotes and the bells and whistles attached to those. Again, as re- knowing how the insurance world works, the more of one product they sell, the higher their commission is on those types of policies and the greater commission that they get from those companies, right? If they sell X numbers of tens of thousands of dollars of commission for XYZ company and only it, like it, it just increases their compensation. So understand that their obligation is first and foremost to the company that they work for and not to you as the OD, which is the biggest disconnect in financial services. And like I said, I'm not gonna go on that high horse, or uh, high horse, excuse me, on that um, soapbox, but there's that disconnect between, is this financial professional giving me advice in my best interest, or are they selling me a product to meet the quota of their firm? And insurance is ripe in the latter and not in the former. So mm-hmm. those bells and whistles are really, really important. And again, what Natalie had said, it's great you know, the the grown-up policy when you exceed the coverage of the AOA, it's a great policy to complement, but it is very rarely the only piece of disability insurance that you should have.
0: All right, yeah, that all makes sense. And, yeah, let's jump a little bit over to homeowners and car insurance, and I know I listed a brief discussion, but we can have a, a little little bit of a longer conversation. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about, about it. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's see here. I think Adam's up. So yeah, we'll just talk about it. What we sh- what we should have and how we should approach it.
1: Yeah, so it, it's one of those things that I think we we commonly feel like, oh, and it's, it's the thing that is most advertised in all aspects, right? Geico versus Progressive versus Liberty Mutual, et cetera, right? It's how can I get my premium down to the lowest amount. And you have to understand as with everything in life, you get what you pay for. So the, the most important thing from an OD's perspective is to understand the homeowner's aspect of it, make sure that you're understanding that you're not only just insuring for the cost of your home, but the replacement costs, right? What would it cost to, if something happened to your home, to not only take the home down, replace all your belongings inside of it, do the demolition, rebuild the home. So make sure that you have good coverage in place as it relates to the limits relative to the value of your home. On the auto insurance side of it, you wanna make sure that you have good coverages, that 100, 300, 100 type um, uh, coverage or the different aspects of of, uh, auto insurance coverage. And then on top of all that, natalie i'm not sure if you took a cfp prep course in in, in prep for the uh, for the exam I, I went through the zon course and the joke in Zon is that if the cfp board exam ever asks you if a live or if an umbrella coverage is needed the answer is always yes and th- that was a joke in the in the cfp curriculum but it's because it's true relative to the cost of the policy and the coverage that it provides Umbrella coverage is a no-brainer from risk management, and where umbrella coverage, how that works, is it will pick up if you ever max out your homeowners or your and or your auto insurance coverage. Right, so if your if your auto insurance, if you're in a bad auto insurance act, auto insurance accident, you're in a bad auto accident and you max out the occurrence limit of that policy of three hundred thousand dollars, but someone has major brain, you know, major trauma and it's medical, et cetera, et cetera, and you exceed that three hundred thousand dollars and you don't have an umbrella policy, guess who's gonna subrogate you? Who's gonna come after you for the difference? The insurance company is not gonna pay a dime more than $300,000. And for those of us in the medical field, right? We know that those dollars can add up quick. And so that's where having that umbrella policy, having a $2 million, $3 million, I think the the least that you can even buy is a million. Um, You know, having a couple million dollar in uh, liability or umbrella policy is gonna be a couple hundred dollars a year in premium. And that will pick up if or when you ever max out or exceed the limits of your auto insurance. So those are my initial thoughts on on, uh, on homeowners and, and auto. Natalie, um, what would you add to that?
2: Yeah, I, there's a few common pitfalls I see that are um, really common. And they're worth mentioning because they're such easy fixes. Um, the, the first is, as it relates to umbrella insurance, um, You. So umbrella insurance always almost has a five hundred thousand dollars underlying limit requirement. So if you get in a car accident, you remember your auto is like that $500,000, Your auto insurance will cover five hundred, or if you're if you're at three hundred, then you're responsible for the next two hundred, and your umbrella kicks in over that amount. So make sure all your underlying limits on your auto and your homeowners are five hundred thousand dollars. If you get an umbrella policy, otherwise you're still out of pocket quite a bit of money. And I don't know about you, but I don't have $200,000 <laughs> lying around to pay someone who, who sues me. So, um, it's all invested for the term growth. Um, but, uh, the other, the other piece on that is that a lot of times the underinsured or uninsured motorist coverage, they put in different limits on that. And, I, this is just a theory, but I think if I got in a car accident with someone who was uninsured or underinsured, that they would be a lot more likely to sue me than someone who does have insurance, like a responsible person. So make sure that your um, uninsured motorist coverage is the same as your main coverage limits, and it'll cost more, um, but that, that's a bigger source of liability. Um, on, on homeowners coverage, not all policies include water backup, and as parents of young children, both Adam and I can assure you that water backup is probably one of the number one sources of damage you're likely to have in your house, especially if there's a toilet on the upstairs level involved and hardwoods. I mean, that can be expensive really quickly. So make sure that water backup is included in your policy. Um, and but my mom, last-
1: I wanted to flush my princess, my, my princess's diaper down the toilet, right? Yeah. And just kept flushing it, flushing it, flushing it, flushing
2: All of the above blocks, I mean, Clothes, Batman
1: masks. We had a friend that had that, that happen
2: with a Batman mask. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even want to know, but yes. So, um, and then the the last one on um on the homeowners' oh flood, uh, most policies. If you have a, um, I don't have my wedding ring on right now. If you have a wedding ring or something that costs, most of them cap out at twenty five hundred dollars per item. So if you have a ten thousand dollar or five thousand dollar wedding band or a gun collection or I mean, I, I don't know what else, um, really expensive surfing equipment. I don't know. I said that because you're in California. <laughs> um, but, um, but those things have, need to be itemized separately. Otherwise you, you might lose out if someone came in and broke into your house. Um, so those are my really exciting, but, but the umbrella insurance is really the number one gap I see for doctors. And if someone gets in an accident with you and they look at your driver's license and they Google you, boom. You're, they're going to see you're a doctor and they're not going to know that ODs make less than radiologists. They're just going to see that you're a doctor. So not always, by the way, practice owners can do really well. But, um, but, but you know, so you're, you're a natural source of liability and that's something that you should realize and cover for.
0: Yeah, all good points, all good points. All right, and then let's jump into... Uh... We already talked a little bit about umbrella policies. Any other add ons that we didn't talk about that you want to mention? If not, we'll just jump into the next topic. I
2: see people asking about long term care policies. Um, uh, for doctors who are in their 50s and have a very tight retirement simulation, I, I highly recommend a long term care policy. That's so that's if you cannot perform the activities of daily living, which are things like eating yourself, getting out of bed, Um, toileting is actually the word they use, Um, drinking water. If you need help with any of those, that is what a long-term care policy covers. Um, So in general, I would rather see someone young and safer retirement have more than enough money to pay for that themselves. But if you are older and retirement is tight, then that's probably a policy to look into.
1: Yep. And and adding on top of that, if you to, to kind of dovetail back into something that we were talking about earlier, if you do have some type of permanent insurance where it has underperformed what you thought it could, or what it was either positioned to you as, or for whatever reason, and the and and that type of insurance is no longer serving your needs, right? People's lives change. And so too does the role of insurance and how it should play in your overall plan. There are ways to utilize the cash value that you have in a whole life policy or in a universal life policy. And depending on your insurability and other things that come along that come along with that, to use the cash value in that to um, cover long-term care. It's not a traditional long-term care and quote unquote standalone long-term care policy like Natalie was talking, like Natalie was talking about. It's not going to have all the different bells and whistles that a, that a traditional standalone long-term care policy will have. But it's a way where you might, if the city, and this is where insurance is such a subjective conversation, it's, it's very difficult for us to see, there, as with most things, most things with financial planning, to say black and white, if this, then this, right? But if you have policies like that, you can use the cash value to potentially make lemonade out of lemons. You know, if, if you have something that's underperforming, at least know that that option is, well, an option.
0: All right, great. Um, and then I saw
2: a question, sorry, yeah, a couple on questions here. Um, the the long-term care. Um, mm-hmm. it's the same carriers. Uh, any general agent that's able to quote most multiple carriers should be able to do that. Um, it's the same carriers that we were talking about before, Northwest, Mass Mutual,
1: Mutual friends,
2: Omaha. Um, um the one there's a product that I do not like. Um I have so I am that person who will take the numbers and I will tear them apart and re put them on a spreadsheet to figure out the break-even. I'm not a big fan. There's a life insurance slash long-term care insurance hybrid product. I'm just not a big fan of it. Um it's I would rather buy term buy a long-term care policy. Yeah.
1: That's the difference. Which to be clear, that's what I was talking about, but that's yeah. only a possible solution. If you already have, like, don't go out and buy that now. Like, that should not be your starting point. You I just want roll, to clarify that.
2: You can yes, you can take an existing policy and move it into that type of policy, and it can do both. Thank you. Sorry, I didn't. Yeah. Make
1: that. No, 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 no. But I think it's a good point. Like, uh, we're on the same page there. I would not like if you don't have anything right now. Do not go out. It is a very, very expensive preposition to do that. All I was saying in that capacity, it's like a. Uh, Good way to make a bad situation better. I I don't know. It like it's 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 having the best worst case. I hope that makes sense. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, to Natalie's point, it's not the best out there, but it's an option to consider if you are if you are already so to speak stuck in 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 a policy.
0: Okay, I think we had one other question. Um, Will you Uh, still get?
1: Yeah, Yeah. go ahead.
2: So.
0: I'll read it out loud just so the audience can hear it. Will you still get disability benefits if you have an own occupation policy in place at the time of a qualifying event, but you are not working at the time of the event? Uh, Example, taking a couple of years off from working in optometry. So, my initial thought on that, A,
1: I'll use a get out of jail free card and go back and read your policy. Um, (laughs) That's
2: exactly what I was going to say. Right
1: my off-the-cuff answer and and just assessment based off how that works is that you're gonna have to prove loss of income. And if you don't have any income to replace, even though you bought it when you were insured for this, they're gonna ask what you're They're gonna have, you're gonna have to not only just prove your disability, but prove, but prove that there was loss of income at the time to for, for them to pay a claim. Um, so my initial, again, go back and read your policy because that will be talked about in the terms of the policy but I doubt it.
2: Um, Actually, and that raises a really good point. Um, If you go from five days of patient care down to three, or if you're a practice owner and you sold to somebody else and are making less than you used to, the insurance company is not gonna knock on your door and lower your premium. You need to call and say, hey, I'm making less money. Therefore, you're not gonna pay me as much as I was making if I get disabled anyway, and make sure you call them and produce your policy um, benefit.
1: Now, one thing to add on to that though, if you are in a situation from what this poster is talking about, it sounds like, you know, taking a couple of years off from working optometry. For example, in my wife's situation, when she took some time off to be at home with our girls, we knew she was going to go back to practicing. If you go ahead and decrease your benefit, insurance company is not going to really ask any questions. If you go back to work and now you want to ink and go back up, hey. Mr. Mr., Mr. Mm-hmm. and Mrs. Insurance Company, um, I'm not working again. I'd like to get back up to coverage. You're gonna have to go through full underwriting. You're gonna have to pass medical questions and they're going to rate you as if you were basically taking the policy out at your current age, instead of basing it off of the table that you, uh, basing it off the risk table and the premiums associated with that table when you took out the policy. Mm-hmm. So know that to Natalie's point, and correct me if I'm wrong and understand what you were saying, Natalie, doing that and decreasing your benefit is only if you're like, do not pass go, do not get, do not collect $200, like you're on the way out
2: Half and aren't retirement. gonna come back in, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and that's a good
0: point. All right, great. Yeah, so hopefully that answers the question for you, Kim. Uh, let's jump into our next topic, uh, rental properties or also ODs that own their own buildings for their practices. I guess that would kind of fall under this question. Um, do you recommend holding in an LLC or utilizing an umbrella policy and holding under the individual? And I think we're on Adam for that one. Right.
1: Yeah, the, the LLC makes makes sense. The, I mean, there's, uh, you could do it on the personal side, but I'd see no reason to do that in setting up an LLC by keeping your articles of incorporation, your, your, you know, your secretary of state with each individual, like it's not that difficult to do that. And the pros vastly outweigh the cons of, of having to do that um for for multiple different reasons so i would recommend doing it in the llc and just having that be as a separate entity
0: and natalie
2: um for practice real estate definitely an llc i'm I'm a little um in a single member llc doesn't something to keep in mind um doesn't require a separate tax return so if you're like i really want to buy it with my spouse just remember every extra person is an extra tax return so that's something to keep in mind Um, But for like a small rental property, I know a lot of doctors who are renting the house they used to live in, their first home, I'm okay with not having an LLC. Um, If if you go to refinance, once the property's in an LLC, it's a little trickier. So um, like a home, for example. Um, So, but definitely step up umbrella coverage if you're not gonna have an LLC. All
0: right, great. Yeah, glad we're on the same page there. yeah, I know on bigger pockets they always talk about rental properties. That's like the number one argument is LLC versus individual <laughs> rental policies. So that's why I put that on there. But yeah, it seems to that makes sense. And then uh, let's talk a little bit just about general asset protection. Um, what are some best practices, for roadies, uh, that they can implement in order to protect their financial well-being? Especially when you, you know, when you've worked for a few years, you've gained some assets, you've gained some investments. Uh, how do you prevent poor decision making and also theft? And Natalie, if you wanna start this one.
2: Yeah, so um, lock your doors. (laughs) (laughs) um, You know, there are some assets that are protected from creditors and even bankruptcy, such as your home and your 401k and your IRAs. So um, those should be assets of last resort. So if you need to take care of something, maybe don't leverage up your home because you can lose it due due to foreclosure. but keep those, keep in mind those are protected. So try to keep them separate and protected. Um, You know, any financial decision that is, could have a really significant long-term impact is worth taking time to think about. Um, So if you're looking at buying a really nice, I don't know, vacation home, for example, you know, take some time to think about it to protect, you know and think about can you really afford it and what if you lost your job and could you afford it then and um that's that i i that's probably the number one source is trying to buy too much stuff because you have disposable income or getting car leases that are really income dependent um so that would be i'm not sure that's what you were looking for but um yeah. yeah and the other one is you know if you do have something valuable like a wedding ring like i said itemize that out on your um, on your homeowner's policy. Because if someone breaks into your house or your apartment or your condo and steals it and something's over 2500 I mean, it varies by the policy, but chances are you're not getting your money back on that one.
0: Yeah. And Adam, anything to add to uh,
1: that? You know, I, the, the thing that caught my eye, whether it be from theft or temptation, if you're a practice owner, know your AR and AP system know how money comes into the practice, know how money goes out of the practice. Um, for anybody that has access to your checkbook that can sign checks for you, know the invoice system that you have, know who's getting paid for what, what goods and services are being received for that. There are countless examples of uh, office managers that take some time and go away for the weekend and they go to their very, very nice lake home that they have um, two and a half hours away from the practice and they find, and, and how is that funded? It was funded from, Overbilling. It was funded through um, shady invoices that were invoiced to the practice, and then the person paid out the invoice. And guess who owned that in? Like, so understand the flow, of the charts of accounts in your practice to know who's getting paid and what they're getting paid for. That's not to say that you shouldn't delegate that inform- that that task because you should. You sh- at COD, you should not be the one solely responsible for writing those checks and paying you know paying your vendors that should be a delegate that should be a task that's delegated but there needs to be checks and balances and periodic i don't want to say a full-on audit but you, you it should be communicated and understood for the team members that you know what the hell's happening in your practice like the worst thing for you and the most inviting opportunity for someone that has a little bit of a sliver of dishonesty and mischievousness in them is to understand that their practice owner doesn't know up from down, left from right with the financials of their practice. You show up, you're in an exam lane all day, right? And this this spreads out just from a, from a practice management standpoint as well, right? That's why having a good office manager is so important in the success of your practice because as, as an OD, you should your ability to drive revenue is largely predicated upon you bouncing back between lanes, seeing patients. So when you're not truly upfront, seeing how the, how the, you know, how the sausage is made, so to speak, you do have to have somebody trustworthy in that spot, but that doesn't mean that you can relegate yourself from the operator or from the responsibility of knowing how your practice works and how the bills get paid and who's getting paid, what, and what that process looks like. So I think you need to manage expectations and protect yourself by knowing. So, Hopefully that makes sense. That's that's the one thing that I would really emphasize there. The next kind of outside the box thinking, and I'll say this with the big disclaimer that um, it is not for everybody. It is continually on the IRS's dirty dozen of top tax areas that are used um, aggressively, dare I say, illegally. But if you if you have specific insurable risks that are not otherwise covered by your commercial insurance or other types of liability insurance, you had there is the opportunity to potentially look at what's called an A31B, an A31B captive, micro captive insurance agency, where basically, to make a long story short, you're setting up your own insurance company as a separate entity. Your practice pays premiums to this company. There's a way there, there's there's a whole set of rules around A31B elections. There are very, very clear rules. And then there are US tax court cases where the US tax court has interpreted those rules. On whether or not you're coloring inside the lines, it is a it is both a tax play and an insurance play to do that to cover un um, uh, cover risks associated with owning your practice that are not otherwise covered by your traditional practices. And again, it's a multi-pronged it's a multi approach or it's a solution that provides multiple different types of benefits, but you have to know what you're doing. And honestly, you shouldn't know what you're doing. You need to work with someone that has done that before, that knows how that works. It's along the same lines as the R&D credit. And I know that's a hot topic in the optometry community as well right now of should I, shouldn't I, can I, can't I? Um, so I say that with slight trepidation, even bringing it up. It's possible, but don't just think, oh, Adam talked about 831. It's great. Let's go do it. Like there's, you certainly know what you're doing with there.
2: And Adam, at what size practice do you think a strategy like that is appropriate? Because this is not.
1: Correct. I'm, I'm In- so glad you bring that up. No, it's a very good, good point. You need to.
2: collective revenue. Correct.
1: Practice. Yeah. That's a really good point and I'm glad you make that, I'm glad you clarified that. Uh, my experience has, my experience in looking at cases has been your practice needs to be comfortable stocking away about 100 grand a year in premiums into this policy or into this type, into this 831, that is micro captive. So yeah, Natalie, to your point exactly, 1.2, 1.3, 1.5 million dollar practice, do not pass go, do not collect $200, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Multi-doctor location, five, six, seven, ten 10 locations, 20, 25, 30 million in top line revenue, you know, a couple million of freestanding cash flow out of the, out of this. you know, maybe it's a C corp organized with a, with a number of different S corps underneath. Yeah. Now we might not, now it might pay to kick the tires on that type of solution, but yeah, a hundred grand would be in my experience, the minimum amount that you're looking for. Okay.
0: Very good points. And yeah. All right, we got a couple questions from the audience real quick before we jump into our Yay. last topic. Oh, wow, 1015
1: and we're getting questions on insurance. I love all yeah, in there, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, first one's from uh, Heidi. If you are paid as a speaker for lecturing workshops, et cetera, as a 1099, is it advised to have an LLC and be paid to the LLC or is that necessary? My first question would be how much?
1: I mean, if it's five, 10, 15 grand, probably not.
2: I mean, from a functional perspective, maybe it would be nice to keep your financials and deductions are easier to keep track of if it's in an LLC. And but you can do that in just a separate bank account as well. Yeah, so, and they're all taxed back to you. Um, you know, I've seen the question come up on whether having speaker fees warrants a um, malpractice policy. Hmm.
0: That's
2: yeah. Uh... I I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> I could go either way on that one. I, you know, I think for the costs, if it's not expensive, that's not a bad idea. You never know if you jumble your words because you're talking at 10, 15 at night, Eastern time, you just don't know. <laughs> um, you just don't know. So I, I'm small policy. I'm, I'm, I'm really in favor of that. I think protection first on on things like that.
0: All right, great. And then um, Steve asked, "Does disability insurance reimburse based on only W two income, or does it factor in dividends and distributions?" Um, it'll, who wants to go first? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> My
1: experience has been it's typically only W two income. Uh, they're not going to they're, they're not going to really necessarily take your return on equity as a practice owner into consideration. It's disability income protection income being classified as W two.
0: All right. Uh oh. I, freeze. There? I think she froze. There we oh, go. There we go. Back. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
2: sorry. Um uh I- Th- th- there's pol- policies you my every time I freeze, it says after my internet connection is unstable. I'm like, thanks. I figured that out. Um, yeah. the, <laughs> there's other type of policies, like a business overhead expense um, that can help cover if you were disabled helping keeping the lights on in the practice and employees paid. Um, so that's a way to cover that. Um, the, the goal is to keep the practice running so that you can, uh, continue to take your dividends and distribution. So for my single owner, see solo doc practices out there, the best thing you can do is grow your practice to hire another doctor. So that if something happened to you. There's somebody to
1: help. But, well, and um, I think this is, this is another example of why it's important to pay yourself a meaningful wage in your practice as well. Because when you're going to when you're going through the process of getting disability insurance, one of the questions on a typical disability insurance application is, do you receive more than ten percent of your income from? It gives a list like uh, passive investment activity, dividends, distributions, things like that. Like, are you a passive investor? Do you need quote unquote disability insurance? And so that's one of the questions. But all that they're asking for when they're when you're asking to um, uh, prove your income is going to be w2 wages and so if you're an od that is trying to i don't want to say gain the tax code because it is a very real discussion and strategy as far as how much do you pay yourself as w2 versus how much you pay yourself in in distributions to mitigate that social security medicare tax just know that right the implications of paying yourself a lower wage not only will reduce the amount of future social security benefit but you're also putting yourself up against a glass ceiling, if you will, on how much disability insurance that you can get. And if something does happen to you, to Natalie's point, if you look at yourself in the practice and what you're paying yourself as a meaningful wage, if you're on a 0.8 full-time equivalent and you're only paying yourself a $35,000 per year salary, you don't even have a business, right? We don't even have, You don't even have a solvent business right now because there's no OD that's going to come in and work four days of patient care for 30 grand a year. So there's multiple different ways in which you can look at why is paying yourself a meaningful wage an important decision point in the management of your practice and how that practice serves
0: you personally. Hope that makes sense. Yeah, that all makes sense. All right, well, let's jump into the last topic and uh, that is children. And ironic part about this, uh, Dat and I get so many questions about what OD oh, you should do about their children and we both of us don't have children yet so it's <laughs> always ground, so.
1: you both are the both perfect you do people your
0: OCFEs, so probably have some better answers so i know there's two questions on this but we'll just lump them together uh, what's the best way to prepare for uh, your children's future financially and what are some plans and methods that you recommend for saving and investing for your children and Natalie, if you want to start this one
2: sure so um so for practice owners you have like uh, collect $100 every time you pass the card because you can employ your kids in your practice. And you can put every last penny they earn into a Roth IRA. And I um, can't remember my tax code perfectly, but I think that each child can owe a, earn up to $12,000 a year and not have any taxes associated with it. Adam, did I get that number right?
1: Twelve four, yep.
2: Yep, twelve thousand. Same deduction. Thank you. Twenty fifteen tax code changes. So um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you, you can literally pay your kid as a deductible expense, put it in a Roth IRA. And um, so when we I talk to practice owners, that's usually my first um, my first suggestion. Um, the, the caveat is they have to work. So they have to do photo shoots. They have to you know a two year old can go wipe the baseboards in your office. I don't. You know it, there's there's options be creative with a
1: towel not a crayon
2: yes <laughs> that's a really important caveat but they can help you decorate they can be in your Christmas cart I've I've heard um clients kids give um older kids give talks on progressive myopia you know in little videos so um, that's, that's a really good thing to do. And so that's twofold. I just gave you two answers. One is you've taught them about working and earning mar- money and you're planning for their future. So generally in that case, I'm in favor of doing your funding a Roth before a 529 plan because it's more flexible. 529 plans have to be used for education. If you have a two-year-old, 16 years is a really long time. A lot can happen to higher education between now and then. Um, so I'm in favor of that. Um, for older kids who are like nine, I love having them set up their own little account and picking stocks that they think are cool. You'd be surprised at how well kids can do, mostly because they're like, "I want to buy Amazon, I want to buy Tesla," and maybe they don't have enough money. Charles Schwab has uh, fractional shares you can buy, so maybe that's a better option. But um, it's a really good way you can teach them about earnings and stock prices and how things go up and down. It's so it's a, even at nine years old, it's a really good experience for kids. So. Um, and then my last thought is there have been studies on uh what makes kids successful, and it's it doesn't turns out it's not i q it's not um it's hard work work ethic and so if you can teach your kids work ethic and then you can teach them to apply that to a career like everyone on this call has done, you're probably on the right path with your kids and teach them about savings. I have to throw that one in there too oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Um So my thoughts on this: everything that Natalie said is is spot on. One thing that you could also, w- when you employ anybody in an S corporation, the one tax that you can't get away from is social security and Medicare taxes, right? So even though, to Natalie's point, the kids are going to not have any or not have any federal income tax because if you're again to use that example, twelve four standard deduction, you pay them twelve four. On their tax return, it's going to show up as a goose egg for taxable income. They made twelve four standard reduction of twelve four, that zeroes out, zero times anything, right? But the practice is still paying 7.65% Medicare taxes. They're still paying 7.65%. So you still have a 15.3% tax. A workaround potentially to that is to what's set up what's called an FMC, a family management company. And a family management company is an LLC where the LLC then leases the kids to the practice. The practice pays the FMC in contract services for services rendered. And then the LLC issues 1099s um, to the kids. And that workaround by doing, that, by doing an, an FMC can sidestep that Social Security and Medicare tax um, strategy. So it's something to peel back the layers on to see if it would work for your, for your situation as well um to employ your kids to it and I said I mean you'd be surprised at what you can you just have to like you're not paying them 80 grand a year we're talking about my friend of mine his his son who's 12, 11 or 12 made $65,000 last year doing voiceovers for commercials it's like you don't have to like there's there's a wide range here of what you can do so think of it, modeling for the website christmas cards to your point shredding whatever it might be it doesn't have to be a whole lot roth ira great um I am a big, I think there's a lot of value in, or I think there's a lot of power in the words that we use with kids. I don't like the word allowance that makes it feel like I'm allowed to get this. Like, this is just mine. I like, I, I call it a commission. In our house, our daughter, she wants a gizmo watch, right? It's those, it's like this, like, well, let's rephrase. Both mom and Brooklyn want the gizmo watch, okay? I'm a little bit indifferent. Gizmo watch is like 160 bucks. Okay. It, it's not a drop in a bucket, but Brooklyn really wants it. And so it's not something that's just going to be given to her. She's not going to get an allowance to buy it. So if we have a commission schedule. We have family chores that we've put on the refrigerator and she gets a quarter for every time she has to earn $28 to get her Gizmo watch $28 a quarter at a time. So there's purpose, there's intentionality, there's focus, there's um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like, commitment right she's not just going to earn it all in a day it's, it, there's a lot of value in and she's six what natalie said i think is really important as well is to educate and teach your kids when they when they're in that when they're in that 9 10 11 year old range i used to teach junior achievement and i say i used to because i want to do it again It's just only 168 hours in a week i love junior achievement and what they do I taught junior achievement in the fifth grade because they did studies that said, at the age in fifth grade, kids at that age are very, very impressionable about how they view money and the way in which they view money, the economy, capital markets. That we taught free trade, the exchange of money, um, uh, currency exchanges. Like at that age, they're so impressionable. And you can really don't underestimate the influence that you can have by even the smallest conversations, reviewing account statements, showing how things grow. Like your kids at the age of 9, 10, 11, 12, they will soak that up more than you know. And the other thing that I think is that should not be lost upon ODs as well is if you've done a good job of building your practice and you've created this this enterprise value in your practice and you've done the 401k savings and things like that, I want you to really pause and be cognizant of the fact that you are very likely setting up generational wealth that is most likely not that that will outlive you will be inherited by your kids and potentially they like this is a family tree that you're building so don't don't lose sight of that and understand how and and recognize how important it is to have just the simplest conversations with your kids when they're five six years old to teach the importance of hard work and earning a commission and then how they invest. Like Brooklyn has a, a a give, save, and spend jar, right? Dave Ramsey has a good. We full transparency. Like, I didn't create this. We benchmarked it off of Dave Ramsey's kid course. Um, it's it's those so simple things that really really matter. So I'll, I'm, I'm a big believer in that. So I'll, I'll, I can keep going, but I'll stop.
0: <laughs> all all very good things, and I, yeah, good advice for ODs out there with kids. So. Well, any. Closing thoughts? Any final remarks? Uh, that was just the end of the agenda right there. So,
2: Insurance is fun. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, as tradition, um, I'll give each of you just a couple minutes. Uh, just talk a little bit about your business and what you can offer our audience. Natalie, uh, if you want to go first.
2: Sure. Um, so uh, I got my intro at the beginning, but I work with employed ODs and optometric practice owners to help them build wealth outside their practice um, and, and job. We, um, One thing that is unique about what both Adam and I do this, uh, we were talking about this earlier today, is that we um, understand optometry in and out. So we have seen employment contracts. We have seen practice financials. We have seen all of that and more. Um, so really integrating practice or your role or your ambitions within the optometric field into your long-term financial plan. Um, So I'm a certified valuation analyst and a certified exit planning advisor. So um, I work with a lot of ODs who are either looking, buying into or selling out of, or someday selling out of their practices um, to help them. uh, I just kicked my daughter's water bottle under the table. (laughs) If you heard that, I'm sorry, (laughs) to help them To help them integrate that into their planning. So I love working with ODs. Um, Y'all tend to be a really analytical group and I'm a very analytical person um, and, and just love what I do and I'm really honored to be here.
0: All right, great. And Adam? yeah
1: i i again I appreciate the opportunity to to drop nuggets of what I hope to be is wisdom and knowledge that that Natalie and I both shared in the group. It's a privilege to be a member and and share that information to help you as o d s make educated and informed decisions with your with your money If you're doing that on your own great that's what we're here for to empower you. If not, and you're looking for that additional guidance and implementation, similar to Natalie, we run a fee-only financial planning firm and investment an investment advisory shop here on the north side of Indianapolis. Currently serve, currently serve ODs in, I think we're up to 24, 25 states. We were kind of joking, Natalie and I each haven't brought on a client in our own state in like over a year. She just brought on an optometrist in Indiana and I brought on one in Georgia. Um, so it, 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 it's just weird how it's happening, right? Um, and, and and so I think the biggest difference to what, like similar to what Natalie said, the reason and where we provide the most value to ODs is that we're gonna do everything that any other advisor that you might be working with is doing, but what separates us is that we're gonna ask you questions that you didn't know you should be asking yourself and that your current advisory team doesn't know to ask you because they don't know optometry. So doing all the basic planning that you're already doing is table stakes for us. That's back of the cocktail napkin we've been doing, that. we can do that in our sleep as CFPs. It's the above the line, deep dive planning as it relates to the specificities of running an optometric practice, how you exit a practice. I tend to be actually more on the right side of the brain. I'm a very um, touchy-feely kind of advisor in the, in the questions and the life planning and aligning goals and intentions. Um, I can do the analytical side, right? I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I just enjoy the emotional component almost more than the analytical side of things. But I think to Natalie's point, we know optometry inside and out. The one thing that I'll leave you as it pertains to insurance here to wrap up is, if if anybody's ever read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he has something in there called the Quadrants of Leadership. Everything that we're talking about from an investment or from a, well, financial planning in general, but especially insurance and estate planning falls squarely into quadrant two. It's it's the important things, but they're never really urgent, right? Disability, like this stuff is never urgent. The problem is, by the time something in risk management goes up into quadrant one, which is urgent and important, it's usually too late. So this stuff isn't fun. It's not sexy. It's not It's not investing. It's not Motley Fool's top tips, right? Things like that. But it's so important to build on a good foundation of a financial plan. So I appreciate the opportunity and the platform here to share sh- share information on insurance. I appreciate Aaron, Dat, everybody there in the leadership team for allowing us to continue to, to play in the sandbox that you've created. And so with that, uh, Aaron, again, I'll turn it back over to you. So thanks again.
0: All right, great. And yeah, to the audience, if this talk on insurance and asset protection lit a fire under you, start making you sweat, we've got two <laughs> finance, fantastic CFPs right here. And all you have to do is jump on the website, it has all their info. So you can call them, email them, however way you want to communicate with them. And this wraps up the kind of trilogy that we were doing with the CFPs, but um, I'm sure we're going to be seeing you guys again. I'm sure more topics are going to come up that individuals want talking about. And blogs, different things like that, classes, I'm sure that'll all be in the future. So yeah. once again, I want to thank both of you guys from taking time out of your busy schedules, especially, I know it's a lot later where you guys are than where it is, where I am. So appreciate you. And I guess we will sign off. Thanks again. Sounds good. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. Natalie, great chomping it up with you again. I appreciate it.
2: As always. Thank you, Aaron. All
1: right. Take care, everybody.